Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash Mark resources. totally jump in. I have a couple of announcements from your Dayton Women in the Word team. Uh, So first of all, for the next two weeks, which are our final two weeks, can you believe we're already there? The next two weeks, the Dayton Women in the Word shop will be open in the main lobby um, after lecture. So make sure that you grab your tote or your mug, um, whatever you would like, and you can um, pay with cash or check at that shop. Um, This church, where we've been um, so graciously hosted, Keystone Church, they are hosting a Project Dream Dress Drive. So if you have a formal dress that you would like to donate for this outreach project, please bring it to the church sometime over the course of the next two weeks. And lastly, you are all invited, as well as any men um, or children that are in your lives or any friends that you have, to celebrate God's faithfulness over five years of summer study at our night of worship on Thursday, July 25th at 6.30 at Faith Christian Fellowship in Beaver Creek. All right, let's open with prayer. Lord, first we praise you tonight for air conditioning, and we thank you for bringing us together again. Lord, may we feast on your word here. And God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak truth through me tonight, and may your power be made perfect in my weakness. Teach us now, we pray. Amen. All right, so let's say our memory verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. Very good, ladies. All right. So we're going to start with a quick overview. A review, rather. So last week we looked at the connecting section in Mark. This is Mark 8:27 to 10:52. And in this section, we saw the turning point in this gospel when, Jesus, or when Peter confessed that Jesus is indeed the Christ. This was followed by the pattern of Jesus foretelling his death three times, followed each time by the disciples continuing to miss the point, and then Jesus teaching on the cost of following him and the true upside down and backward nature of the kingdom of God. The section was bookended by two healings in which two blind men received their sight, and this was both a fulfillment of messianic prophecy and symbolic of the slow healing from spiritual blindness that the disciples were undergoing. So in today's text, we're going to begin the second major section of Mark, Mark 11 through 16. So we've answered the questions, who is Jesus, and what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messianic King? And now for these last three weeks of study, we'll look at how Jesus becomes that King. 
the first section and the connecting section, which are the first 10 chapters of Mark, took place over the course of approximately three years of Jesus's ministry. The second section of Mark, these last six chapters, take place only over seven days. So proportionally, Mark is dedicating substantially more time to this last week of Jesus's life than he does to the rest of his ministry. So clearly, what we are about to look at is incredibly significant for Mark to have devoted so much of his gospel to Jesus's final week. And tonight, we'll see these three sections. Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem, five questions, and the Olivet Discourse. So here we go. Chapter 11 opens with Jesus and those with him drawing near to Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village and he tells them exactly what will happen. They will find a previously unridden colt and they are to untie it and bring it to them, to him. And if anyone questions them, they are to say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So the disciples go and they find exactly what Jesus said they would find. And when questioned, They say exactly what Jesus instructed them to say, and they bring this colt to Jesus. They spread their cloaks over the back of the colt, making a kind of a makeshift saddle, and Jesus gets on. And then he rides into Jerusalem, and many are spreading their cloaks and leafy branches on the ground before him, and they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They are welcoming Jesus into the city in the same way they would a king, making a path for him from their cloaks and the leafy branches. So in some way, even if not fully, these people understand that Jesus is the king, the promised son of David. And just as he has in so many other ways, Jesus here is fulfilling a messianic prophecy by the way that he's entering into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this prophecy was written during a very dark time in Israel's history. God's people were living in exile, and the glory of the Lord had left the temple where it had previously dwelt among his people, symbolizing his presence with them. In this passage, the Lord, through his prophet Zechariah, is promising that he is coming back and that when he returns, he will enter the holy city of Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and he will bring peace. So it's pretty easy to see why, from this passage, the people are expecting a political, militaristic king, and they keep wanting Jesus to be that king. But as he fulfills this prophecy entering the city on the back of a donkey's colt, this is still what they are waiting for him to do. Hosanna means save or please save. And coupled with the fact that this is occurring in the days leading up to Passover, the anticipation of the crowd is probably very high. Why? Well, 
Passover was a feast that the Lord commanded Israel to observe in remembrance of the deliverance that God gave them from the Egyptians. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the Lord delivered the Israelites from under their rule with his 10th and final plague in the land. On that night, the Lord passed through and killed all the firstborn in the land. But before he passed through, he instructed the Israelites to slaughter a lamb, to take its blood, and to spread it on the doorposts of their homes. Then, that night, as the Lord passed through the land, whenever he came upon a home which, on which the doorpost was marked with blood, he passed over that house and did not kill any firstborns within it because they were covered by the blood of the lamb." It was after this plague that Pharaoh finally relented and let the Israelites go out from under his hand. And now the Passover feast, commemorating the miraculous rescue from under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians, is drawing near. And the crowd correctly perceives that Jesus' entry into the city is fulfilling the messianic prophecy from Zechariah, and they cry out to him, save us, please save us. It's likely then that the watching crowds are expecting a similar Passover experience to the first one from so many centuries ago. But instead of delivery from the Egyptians, this time they hope to be delivered from the Romans. So Jesus, he makes it into the city and enters the temple, which is actually a fulfillment of another prophecy found in Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. We know this is John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord whose glory left the temple centuries ago when his people turned away from him is back in a sense. And he looks around at everything. He's taking in what has become of his house. And because it's late already, he and the apostles depart for Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. The next day, Jesus and his apostles head back into Jerusalem from their temporary dwelling place in Bethany. And here we see Jesus' humanity because we read that he's hungry. He sees a fig tree in the distance and it has leaves on it. So he goes to find some food. So a quick lesson about fig trees. The fruit of the fig tree often appeared simultaneously with or sometimes even prior to the leaves. Now, Passover was a little early in the year for the fig tree to be producing leaves or fruit, hence Mark's comment that it was not the season for figs. This tree, however, was special. It was producing a little bit before its appointed time, but it was still giving every indication because of its leaves that it would provide sweet fruit for a hungry passerby. Despite its promising appearances, however, Jesus finds no figs. As a result, he curses the tree to never bear fruit again, saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples hear what he says. The fig tree is likely symbolic of the Jewish leaders who have a promising appearance, but are actually not producing any fruit at all. And in the same way that he has just cursed the fig tree, Jesus also condemns these hard-hearted leaders. So I wonder in what ways we're like a fig tree tonight. Where do we look like we're healthy, fruit-bearing Christ followers, and yet, upon further inspection, there's no real fruit at all? Where does the Lord need to do some pruning so that you can begin bearing fruit for the kingdom tonight?
So after the incident with the fig tree, Jesus and the apostles arrive in Jerusalem and they enter the temple again. And before we get into what Jesus did in the temple, we're going to take a minute to talk about what exactly the temple was. So the first temple was constructed by King David's son, King Solomon. Before the construction of the temple, God had dwelt symbolically in a mobile structure called the tabernacle that traveled with the Israelites wherever they went. Under the rule of Solomon, the nation of Israel saw a time of great peace, and it was during this time that God's permanent dwelling place, the temple, was erected. But when the city was destroyed in 586 BC, the temple was destroyed along with it. If you studied Ezra and Nehemiah with us a couple of summers ago, you'll remember that Ezra oversaw the rebuilding of the temple when the first exiles were allowed to return to the ruined city and resurrect it a few decades after its destruction. Herod the Great later expanded and beautified that temple that Ezra oversaw, and that was the structure that Jesus was now entering. Now, the whole temple area was surrounded by a wall, and then the area within that wall had many different subsections or courts, and who you were dictated how far into the temple you were allowed to venture. The furthest court out was the court of the Gentiles, so anyone and everyone could be in this area of the temple complex, but the Gentiles couldn't go any further. Then, moving inward towards the inner sanctuary was the women's court, then Israel's court, and then the priest's court. And the priest's court contained the altar on which burnt offerings were sacrificed, along with the other holy elements that God had commanded to be built and placed in the temple. This was where the inner sanctuary was found, inside of which was the most holy place, called the Holy of Holies. This is where the glory of the Lord had previously dwelt, and it was separated from the rest of the sanctuary by a curtain, which no one was ever allowed behind, except the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement. So when it says that Jesus entered the temple, he would have come first into the court of the Gentiles. But instead of finding a place of worship and prayer, he finds a marketplace. He was likely overwhelmed by the stench of all the sacrificial animals being sold, his ears ringing with the clinking of coins as money was being exchanged, and the hustle and bustle of those buying, selling, and trading all around him. And in his righteous outrage, he drives out the buyers and the sellers alike because they're both taking part in the circus that has come to take place within this holy structure. He overturns the tables of the money changers who are making a pretty profit off of the exchange fees that they're charging the foreigners who have traveled far, far away, from far, far away places to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he also overturns the seats of those selling pigeons who are likely taking advantage of the poor because pigeons were the offerings prescribed by the Lord for those who couldn't afford the greater offering of a lamb. And he teaches them, quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, he says, have made it a den of robbers. Today, God no longer dwells in a temple, but within each and every one of his children. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 tells us, Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, he, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what is the state of God's temple tonight? Is it a place of worship and prayer within you where God is being glorified? Or is it a den of robbers? A marketplace where things other than God and his glory are taking up the most space and making more noise. A place where the name of the Lord is defiled. Are there rooms within your temple that you're trying to keep the Lord out of? Ask the Lord tonight to purify his temple anew and to create in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. As Jesus is cleansing the temple, we read that the Jewish leaders present are seeking to destroy him because they're afraid of him because all the crowd was astonished at what he was saying. What threat is that to them? Well, most of Jesus' teaching is directly opposed to how they, who are supposed to be the shepherds of the flock of Israel, are failing to lead the sheep, how they are falling short. And so, with the crowd being astonished at Jesus' teachings, the Jewish leaders are likely feeling very at risk of losing their authority and power with the people. It's also very possible that they were getting a cut of the profits from this temple marketplace, and so they stood to lose out financially if the people started taking a liking to what Jesus was teaching. The driving force behind the actions of the Jewish leaders here is fear. Fear that Jesus and his truth is going to result in a loss of status, power, and authority for them. And so they're seeking to get rid of him. And when we read that, when, and then we read that when evening came, they went out of the city. The next morning, they passed by the same fig tree that they had passed the previous morning. And this time, it's not covered with leaves, but rather completely withered. And Peter remembers what had happened the previous morning. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered almost as if he's surprised to see the almost immediate result of the words that he had heard Jesus speak just 24 hours before. And Jesus responds to Peter's exclamation with the same prescription he has given so many times in this gospel, faith. Have faith in God, he says. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And he continues, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus has essentially just made the same statement twice. So look at the parallel. I say to you and I tell you, whoever says to this mountain and whatever you ask in prayer, believe that what he says will come to pass and believe that you have received it and it will be done for him with it will be yours. That's what the therefore is there for. Because verse 23 is true, verse 24 is also true. But so is the entirety of the Bible. And when these verses are misinterpreted, it's often a result of not looking at the whole counsel of Scripture when determining meaning. Just as much as Jesus means here that whatever we ask for in prayer will be given to us, it is also equally true that nothing happens outside of God's will. So no matter how much you ask for something, if it is not within God's will for you to receive that thing, you're not going to get it. This is certainly a very difficult thing to understand. How can both be right? 
But somehow, in God's perfect way, both things are holy and equally true. And so we're called to pray in bold faith, believing with the humble, childlike trust earlier taught by Jesus. But we're also called to humbly submit to the will of our Heavenly Father, even when, and perhaps especially when, it doesn't line up with our hopes and desires. And then Jesus ends this brief teaching by saying in verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Did this ring any bells for anyone? It's very reminiscent of the line in the Lord's Prayer that says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And perhaps this exhortation is included here because readiness to forgive is a marker of true faith. It is a fruit born of those who believe. Just as the lack of fruit invites curse, as with the fig tree, a bearing of fruit marking true faith invites blessing. And here we come to the second section, the five questions. This section is mostly comprised with Jesus being questioned by different major religious groups of the day. And for descriptions of what each group did and believed, be sure to check out the glossary of terms that's at the front of your mark packet. So first we see the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come to Jesus, and they ask him question number one. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? The thing that they're likely referring to here is the previous day's temple cleansing, but they probably have in mind all of the things that Jesus has been doing throughout his ministry, and especially the things which so clearly indicated him as the Messiah. Instead of answering them outright, Jesus first asks them a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Similarly to how the Jewish leaders have been trying to trap Jesus with his words, he now gives them a little taste of their own medicine. They're stuck, not knowing how to answer because either way their answer gets them in trouble, either with Jesus or with the people. And again, we see that these leaders are driven by fear. So instead of answering, they just say, we don't know. And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You don't answer me, I don't answer you, Jesus says. And as chapter 12 opens, we read that he began to speak to them in parables. And he tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. Then he leased it out to some tenants and went away to another country. When it was time for the wine to be ready, the owner sent one of his servants to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the tenants. But rather than giving him the fruit, the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And we read that the owner of the vineyard sent servant after servant after servant to collect his rightful share of the fruit, only to have each one return to him beaten and bruised and empty-handed. And some didn't return at all because they were killed by the wicked tenants. After having no success with sending his servants, the owner's the owner thinks that he will send his son, his beloved son, because surely the tenants will respect him, the owner's own flesh and blood. But instead, the son meets the same fate as the servants, and the tenants kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. Jesus concludes his parable with this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So remember that a parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. So what is this parable about? Well, the owner is God, and the vineyard is Israel. God planted his people, and he gave them everything that they needed to grow and to produce fruit. Then he left his people in charge of some tenants, the Jewish leaders. And these tenants, or leaders, were to care for the vineyard. At some point, God is expecting the fruitful results of this vineyard, and he sends his servants to collect the fruit. They are met with disdain, however, and the leaders of Israel do not listen to them, but rather abuse them and send them away. So God sends his son, his beloved son, and we know who that son is. It's Jesus himself. But will the leaders treat him with respect? No. In fact, they will kill him just as they did some of those who preceded him. So what will God do? He's going to come and destroy those leaders in whose care he left the vineyard, and he's going to give the care of the vineyard to someone else. The scripture that Jesus quotes is from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This had long been understood as a messianic psalm. And so again, we see the religious leaders being confronted with Jesus's true identity, but refusing to embrace it. The builders are the Jewish leaders, and the rejected stone turned cornerstone is Jesus. And upon that cornerstone, God's vineyard and kingdom will grow and thrive. And the hard-hearted, Jesus-rejecting leaders will be left out. And then in verse 12, we see again that fear is the driving force behind the actions of the Jewish leaders because they want to arrest him. They know that this parable is about them and that it is against them, but they fear the people. So they leave Jesus and they go away. A few weeks ago, we learned that the driving force for Jesus was to seek and save the lost and to teach the gospel and the need for repentance. So I ask again, is your driving force in line with Jesus's, or this time, is it the religious leaders? Is it kingdom, or is it fear? Well, those who retreated out of the fear of the people, they send others who are more influential in their place to trap Jesus in his talk. The Pharisees and the Herodians begin their question to him with this ugly, false flattery that Jesus sees right through. Teacher, we know that you are good and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And then they ask question number two. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? With this question, the leaders are trying to essentially trap Jesus into speaking against the oppressive Roman Empire, saying that it's not necessary to pay taxes to Caesar, and then they can have the Roman officials come and take care of him, and they can keep their own hands clean in the matter. If he says that the people should pay taxes, then he might be said to be in support of the Roman oppression, and the Pharisees hope he would thus lose favor with the Jewish people. Jesus, of course, senses their hypocrisy. Why put me to the test, he says, 
bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And when they bring him one, he asks them a question of his own. Whose likeness and inscription is on it? The answer is, of course, Caesar's. And Jesus tells them to render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And those who were trying to trap him are instead left marveling at him. Next, we see another Jewish leadership group of the day, the Sadducees, come to him. And Mark notes for us that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Their question to Jesus, the third one in this section, is another attempt to trap him, but this time they're asking him about something that they don't even believe in themselves. And they basically ask him this. It was written in the law of Moses that if a man died and he left no heir, the man's brother was then responsible for marrying his brother's widow and producing heirs on his brother's behalf. So let's say there's seven brothers, and they all die, one right after the other, and each subsequent brother performed his brotherly duty of marrying the previous brother's widow. So in the end, they've all married the same woman, but none of them ever had any children. And then the woman herself dies. Can you blame her? In the resurrection, then... (laughs) In the resurrection, then, whose wife will she be? Because she was married to each of these seven brothers. Well, Jesus answers by telling them that the question itself is flawed because it is founded in a lack of knowledge of the scriptures and of the power of God. The Sadducees have falsely assumed marriage happens in heaven, but Jesus corrects them. When they rise from the dead, he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Resurrection is not simply rising from the dead reanimated. Rather, it's a complete transformation, both of our physical bodies and of our relational structures as we know them. And in his next statement, Jesus is addressing the Sadducees' overall failure to believe at all in the resurrection of the dead. And as for the dead being raised, Jesus says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. If the dead are never to be raised, then God would be God of a whole bunch of dead people. But in fact, he is God of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus concludes his teaching. So let's be careful to not fall prey to this same criticism from our Lord, of a lack of knowledge of the scriptures and of the power of God. Let's be women who read, know, and believe the scriptures and who know the awesome power of God that is contained within its pages. And while he's speaking to the Sadducees, one of the scribes, he overhears their discussion, and seeing that Jesus answers them well, he decides to ask a question of his own. Question number four. Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus, probably sensing that his question is sincere and not a trap being set, actually answers him. The most important is what is known as the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
And the second is this from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe responds to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember that earlier in Mark, in chapter 7, Jesus had called the Pharisees hypocrites because God wanted their hearts, not just their sacrifices and their lip service. But here, this scribe, he seems to get it. He sees that these outpourings of love for God and others are of greater importance than offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, seeing that the scribe answers wisely, tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. All that he lacks is to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, come to usher in that kingdom. And after that, no one asks Jesus any more questions. So now Jesus asks a question, the fifth and final one in this section. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And Mark tells us that the great throng heard him gladly. Here Jesus poses his own confounding question to those present. But he's not trying to trick them, but rather to give them another chance at seeing him for who he really is. The scribes correctly taught that the Christ would be the son of David, born into David's kingly line. They also correctly taught that the passage from Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, and it could be read this way. God said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David, who is the writer of this psalm, refers to the Messiah as my Lord. How then can both be true? How can David call the Messiah his son? Well, the answer to this question would have required the Jewish leaders to admit that David's son, the Messiah, existed both before and after David, from all eternity past, which is why he is afforded to sit at the right hand of God. And if the crowds have correctly identified Jesus as David's son, then also he must be David's Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God. But of course, they don't want to admit that. And Jesus doesn't spell it out for them right here, but he leaves them to think about the implications of the question that he just asked. And then he continues his teaching, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is in stark contrast to the private teachings we heard him give the disciples last week in chapters 9 and 10, that the first will be last and that the greatest among them shall be the servant of all. The scribes, who are supposed to be the ones shepherding and guiding Israel as they follow God, are instead the very embodiment of everything that the kingdom of God is against, putting themselves first and always making themselves look the very best. 
they, Jesus says, will receive the greater condemnation. So where can we tend to be like these Jewish leaders, making much of ourselves while failing to care for those in need, making sure that we look good, particularly when we're out in public where other people can see us? Ask God to show you tonight any places where you are putting on airs, and then ask him to humble you and to give you a heart set on the loving and serving upside-down ways of his kingdom. Jesus' forewarning against the scribes here brings his public ministry to a close. He will not teach again in public. And he now sits down opposite the treasury and watches as the people bring money to put into the offering box. Mark tells us that many rich people put in a whole lot of money, but one poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples. Calling them over, he tells them that the poor widow has given the most out of everyone who contributed an offering that day because they all contributed out of their abundance, but she contributed out of her poverty. She gave everything to the Lord, all that she had to live on. And this, Jesus says, is a greater contribution than all the coins dropping from the hands of the rich without any concern for how it will actually affect their daily lives. So how does it look when you give to the Lord? Do you only give what's left over? Or do you give generously from the first fruits of all that you receive? Do you contribute equally during times of feast and times of famine? Or is your offering one of the first things to get cut when times are lean? It's not about quantity. It's about quality. So ask the Lord for a generous heart that gives not out of abundance, but out of poverty as well. And now we've come to chapter 13, the contents of which are often called the Olivet Discourse. So I will preface this section by saying that it is very difficult to interpret. I came across at least three different interpretations of Jesus's teaching here during my studies. So I'm going to give you tonight what I believe to be the most likely interpretation of that text. Okay, so as they leave the temple, one of the disciples remarks at the beauty of the building that they had just left. And Jesus responds with this foreboding statement. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Undoubtedly, the disciples are puzzled, and his words keep churning over and over in their minds. And as they sit on the Mount of Olives, and they look out at the temple that Jesus just said was going to be completely destroyed, four of the disciples ask him, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And in Matthew's gospel, their question is this, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So it's important to recognize as we jump into the rest of this chapter that the disciples are asking two questions here, and Jesus is answering two questions. When will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple that Jesus just foretold. And two, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? The sign that those things are about to be accomplished. 
So it's very likely that the disciples were not imagining too far apart events when they asked these questions. They were probably imagining that the destruction of the temple would pretty closely precede the end of the age. And so they're asking two questions, yes, but in their minds, the two are very closely related. The temple was indeed destroyed by the Romans just a few decades after this conversation in the year 70 AD. But as we read this passage in 2019, over 1,900 years after the temple's destruction, while we still eagerly await Jesus' return and the end of the age, the two questions seem much further removed from each other. Another thing to note before we dive into this tricky passage is that this is categorized as prophetic writing. And like much of the prophetic writing in the Bible, it contains two elements, the already things that have happened and the not yet things that are still to come. So let's keep all of those things in mind as we move forward. So Jesus begins his answer with a warning to the disciples. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And you, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD was indeed preceded by a time of great political unrest, of earthquakes in various places, and of famines. But Jesus tells the disciples that all these things are a foreshadowing of what's to come. The end is not yet. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. So when you're pregnant and labor pains begin, you have pretty much no idea how much longer it will be before your long-awaited baby actually arrives. I have been blessed with three relatively short labors, but I have many friends who have labored for days before finally holding their precious child. If the destruction of the temple was just the beginning of the birth pains, then the universe has been laboring for 1,949 years. Every day, we are one day closer to Christ's return. But we still have absolutely no clue when it will happen. It might be in our lifetimes, or it might be another 1,949 years away. Only the Father knows. Our job is to not be led astray and to not be alarmed by every tragedy and disaster that we hear about, thinking that the end is near. Jesus is demonstrating here to the disciples that not everything that makes it seem like the end of the world actually means that it's the end of the world. They are assuming the destruction of the temple to mean the end has come, but he is correcting their thinking. But be on your guard, Jesus continues, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. The councils here likely refer to the Jewish leaders of the day and the governors and kings to Gentile leaders. For the sake of Christ, his disciples will be brought in front of both Jews and Gentiles and bear witness before them, enduring beatings as well. From the book of Acts, as well as other books in the New Testament, we know that many of the disciples endured these exact things for the sake of Jesus. Jesus. 
But that doesn't mean that Jesus's words here were totally fulfilled and nobody's ever going to face these things again. As believers, we are still to expect persecution and still to be prepared to bear witness to Christ as we continue to await his return. And in fact, if we follow the birth pains imagery, these things will only increase in frequency and intensity as Christ's return draws ever nearer. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. In conjunction with the parallel passage in Matthew 24, verse 14, which reads, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This verse is largely believed to mean that Christ will not return until every nation has heard the gospel. And we'll see Jesus give a command at the end of Mark this summer in chapter 16, go into the world, all the world, and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We do not know exactly what this will look like. Is it the second that one individual from the final unreached people group hears the gospel presented and accepts it, Jesus is going to be back? Or is that just one marker that says now he is able to return? The timing and the specifics are not something that we are given, and they're really not what's important. What is important is that every single person from every single nation desperately needs Jesus, and he has chosen us to be the bearers of that good news. So how are we doing with that calling tonight? Next, Jesus says to the disciples, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus already warned that this would happen in verse 9, for they will deliver you over. Not they might, they will. So be prepared for this to happen and don't fret over what you're going to say when it does. Know that the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. You are not alone in your moment of trial, but rather completely equipped for whatever lies ahead of you. The fulfillment of Jesus' words here was certainly seen in Peter's speech in Acts 3 and in the many witnessings of the Apostle Paul, but his words are just as true for us today. Jesus does not abandon us in the midst of our persecution, but rather strengthens us for the task at hand. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In the days of the destruction of the temple, in many times since then, today and in times to come, when hatred of Christ and his followers is great, familial relations fall apart sometimes even to the point of death. And we hear the echoes of one of Jesus' first teachings to the disciples when he called them away from their families and their livelihoods to follow him. Jesus' call to discipleship involves a radical commitment to him and to serving him. That's true on the first day that you commit your life to him, and it will be true until you take your last breath or the Lord returns. We will be hated, Jesus says, but we must endure to the end. Those who fall away before the end were never truly regenerated to begin with. Salvation cannot be lost. 
even though it can sometimes seem like that's what has happened. Only the true covenant children of God will remain loyal to the very end. So this next section from verses 14 to 23 can be seen to pretty closely correlate with the events that took place around the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus definitely does seem to be speaking more specifically here. He is giving the disciples clear warnings about what to do when they see very specific things taking place. He also says, however, that such tribulation has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So from this verse, I think we see again that there is an already and a not yet component to these prophetic words from Jesus. In one sense, these things have already happened, but in another sense, what happened in Jerusalem was just a foreshadowing of what's to come when Christ returns. The destruction in Judea and Jerusalem in the first century were truly horrific and indescribably awful. But can we truly say that nothing equally or more terrible has happened since? It's estimated that around one million Jews died gruesome deaths as the city of Jerusalem fell in the first century. But it's estimated that approximately six million Jews were killed in equally horrific ways during the Holocaust. And what about the many other genocides that have taken place around the world over the centuries? Jesus' words in verse 19 and the surrounding verses most likely point forward to the final tribulation that will occur before his return foreshadowed by the tribulation suffered by the Jews in the first century. This is scary stuff. But if you are a follower of Christ, there is great encouragement to be found in these verses. He will not let any one of his elect fall away, but will cut short the days for their sake. In John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So dear sister, daughter of the king, when you follow Jesus, he knows you. He gives you eternal life and he is holding you. Notice that he doesn't say no one can snatch me out of her hand. No. Our good shepherd is the one doing the holding, and his grip is sure. No one, not even false Christs and false prophets with their signs and wonders, can loose his grip on you. But be on guard, he says, because I've forewarned you about all of this. In verse 24 to 27, Jesus switches gears and seems to be talking only about the signs that will precede his second coming. But in those days, he says, after that tribulation likely referring to the final tribulation in the not-yet interpretation of the previous verses. In those days the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. These are cosmic signs that will happen on a universal level. It will happen for every eye on earth to see, and it will be unmistakable. And then... Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All those belonging to Christ, both those who have already fallen asleep and those still living, will rise together as the bride of Christ to meet their bridegroom in the air. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that it will all happen in the twinkling of an eye. And from this glorious scene, we're snapped back to this earth as Jesus draws us back to the image of the fig tree. 
Just as a fig tree gives indications that summer is near, so too do these things I just told you about indicate that I am coming back and soon. And then Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It seems most likely since Jesus has not yet returned and the generation in his presence as he spoke these words are long dead, that he is referring here to the already component of this prophetic section, the 70 AD destruction of the temple. And to conclude this teaching, Jesus jumps back to talking about his future return, saying, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. He then tells a brief parable about a man going on a journey who leaves his servants in charge of his home while he's away. They each have their assigned tasks while he's away, and he expects to find his house in order when he returns. Therefore, Jesus teaches, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Notice that we are not the master in this parable. We are the servants. It is not our right and it is not our job to know when Jesus is coming back. In fact, Jesus himself doesn't know when he'll return, so why should we think that we get to know? Jesus doesn't ask us to figure it out, to spend our time measuring world events against his end-time prophecies and coming up with what day we should expect him to come back. No. Instead, he commands the following. Do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. Do not believe false Christs and false prophets. Be on guard. Be on guard. Keep awake. What different responses did we see? Well, we can be like the religious leaders of the day, and we can seek to destroy Jesus. We can fear him. We can seek to arrest him, to try to trap him, to ask him questions that are really only designed to ensnare. Or we can obey him and treat him like a king. Be astonished at his teaching, marvel at him, hear him gladly, and ask him questions to which we truly desire to know the answer. And our homework. So for this week, we have Mark 14 and 15. Pray over it, answer the corresponding discussion questions, read it multiple times, and annotate it. And then try your hand at paraphrasing just this small passage, Mark 15, verses 21 to 41. The great thing about paraphrasing is that every person's is going to be unique, because what you're essentially doing is putting the text in your own words. So a good question to ask when you're paraphrasing is, if you were going to tell a friend in conversation what's happening in those 20 verses, how would you say it? Or if you're going to teach a child, I've heard it taught that way too, how would you teach these 20 verses to a child? Remember that the goal of every one of these Bible study tools is to enhance your study and understanding of the text, and the same is true of paraphrasing. So give it a shot, even if you're intimidated, and we will see you next week. Thank you.